Welcome to Worth Watching Host Choice, where we hosts finally get a chance to choose what we watch. Today, it's the 1981 film Outland. I'm your host, and I'm just too damn honorable of a podcaster for all you people. <clears throat> Bullshit. <laughs> My co-host is Guy, who never leaves home without his Garrett-proof collar. <laughs> <laughs> Hope that's come in useful for you. Well, yeah, several times. <laughs> So, uh, this film that we totally haven't talked about before <laughs> and had to redo the podcast, uh, is directed by Peter Hyams, who did Capricorn one before this, uh, a film we both, uh, liked. I think it was, uh, almost kind of surprising, um, you know, how good that one was. Yeah. And, uh, so after he had done a couple films before then, even one with Harrison Ford, I think before Harrison Ford, maybe right after Star Wars or before Harrison Ford was a big deal and, and everything. But it was Capricorn one that sort of allowed him to do whatever he wanted next. Right. Cause it was a big success mm-hmm. and he wanted to do a Western, <laughs> but nobody was going to fund a Western. Uh, so instead he did a science fiction film based on high noons. <laughs> yeah. Well. I guess we'll just head into it. All right. It opens a lot like Alien does, actually. And, uh, you know, there's some stuff we could say about Alien's influence on this movie. (laughs) This is just two years after Alien, which was 1979. So there's a black star field showing at the opening. And uh, I like the font, and I discovered that... uh, Run is not a font buff at all. He is uh, he is lacking that uh, lacking that sense, I guess. Yeah. So even though my whatever. my career was technical writing, it just uh, never really took. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm I'm the font lover. I won't say I'm an expert on it, but I I notice fonts a lot, especially if they're unusual or uh, attractive. <laughs> This Outland font is uh, is pretty neat. It's uh, it's it has a kind of nineteen uh, seventies science fiction trying to be futuristic feel to it. <laughs> so it's very appropriate to the mm-hmm. to the movie. I think we see the title credits all in this font and the movie title itself. And actually, uh, one of the things I found uh, I didn't do a lot of research on this movie, but I was just sort of idly poking around the internet. There's a place, it actually is the same museum that has the model of the shuttle. They also have these letters, actual physical 3D letters that are on a stand and propped up by little rods underneath it. And I guess that's what they use to film the opening credits in the, or, you know, the opening outland in the title scene. Hmm. Um, they actually used a model for that. And if you look at it, it looks like it was drawn in, but I think maybe they they might have photographed the model and drawn in some 3D effects on the sides of it later, which is an odd thing to do when you have a 3D model. But they wanted the 3D and the credits to come in on the left side. You know, the 3D angles are coming in from the left and on the right from the right. So that would be hard to do unless you really crafted the model <laughs> to be a little distorted. Mm-hmm. But... Anyway, it's a they're fun little uh, openings, and then we get uh, a view of Jupiter and its moon Io, the little tiny moon next to it, which is a very alien-like thing, uh, a big planet floating there. Although that's been in a lot of science fiction, but then we start seeing this green 
introductory computer font text. And that is uh, definitely similar to Alien, because in Alien it was white. Uh, but you get this introductory text that tells you the basic context. You know, here's a mining operation on Jupiter's moon, Io. Then there are some misspellings in this text, which I uh, uh, dwelt on last time. So <laughs> I'm not going to worry about that now. It's just, uh, I will mention, Marshall should have one L if it's talking about a federal marshal. Principal, if you're talking about the principal or, which is titanium, you should be uh, spelling it with a P. A-L, not P-L-E. <laughs> so, principle uh, is what O'Neill has. Principle uh, is the or. Right. So, you know, mentioning uh, Alien a couple times already, uh, I will give Hayam. So I listened to his commentary, which he did on, it was probably 10th or 20th, you know, anniversary uh, with the DVD or Blu-ray release. And to his credit, he said he never could have done the look of this film without Alien, you know, and that Ridley Scott with mm-hmm. Alien and Blade Runner really set that. Although Blade Runner, I think, had not come out at this time. But um, the, I think one of the really interesting things, however well the overall film works, is that I feel like it's really a cross between Alien and 2001, right? So you have the dirtiness of Alien and also just even the characters and everything, right? These are working class characters. This is a working class place, which is one of the things that was really interesting about Alien, especially you know, since before, right before both these Star Wars had come out and Star Wars is very much a fantasy and it's not a, you know, there's a little bit of working class stuff in there, but mostly it's about how the, you know, just like Harry Potter or whatever, the theoretically working class guy actually turns out to be the prince or, you know, whatever. So uh, uh, yeah, nobody here is a prince, you know, so, uh, but also in addition to that kind of dirty working class look of Alien, they're very much using the visuals from 2001, right? So we have these, like this corridor that keeps getting repeated, which is a, a white triangle, or uh, not triangle, like a white diamond. It's a hexagon. And in 2001, they would have exactly that corridor, except it would be pristinely clean right here. <laughs> and in yeah. this, it's all dirty and et cetera. So I just thought it was kind of interesting uh, how uh, it, it definitely the feel of this merges merges both movies, although it's much more alien than than two thousand one. Yeah, yeah, I'd say the overall look of this movie is a combination of two looks that overlap a lot. One is called Used Future, which is like <laughs> Star Wars pioneered that mm-hmm. with things that are rusting and dirty and falling apart. You know, and uh, it wasn't the first, but it was one of the big. Mm-hmm. pioneers of it or influences on it and then uh, the other is what's called industrial science fiction where you have the space trucker uh, <laughs> service that are so um that works uh it works for me pretty pretty well there is some uh pretty good production design in this movie i think mm-hmm. um not all the special effects and stuff uh hit the nail on the head you know we talked uh on the first try about uh how the uh, the blood looks exactly like the drug that they're giving all these uh, yeah, workers. Yeah, well, it's this bright are... red. <laughs> yeah. And uh, they probably just used the same syrup for both. You know. on, on the <laughs> other hand, it is important to remember when watching it that it's 1981. So things that we might criticize now, like, look, the Mac was three years from coming out, right? I mean, computers mm-hmm. were completely different at the time. And, and as we'll talk about, they actually sort of, you know, the way they use the computers is actually closer to the how we would do it now um, than then. So uh, so I think mm-hmm. that, you know, it's more impressive when you put it in its time, right? 
Oh yeah, yeah. There's there's plenty of neat stuff. I'm just I'm just being nitpicky here, but uh, yeah, there's there's a, a lot to like about this movie, I believe. So we'll get into that as we go <laughs> along here. We see then after we the credits have given us a quick little rundown. This is a mining colony, and there's a federal marshal stationed on it to keep the peace. We see a big cliff face on the on the moon Io. And we see a huge, huge scaffolding. Of course, it's a model, but uh, it's huge scaffolding. And uh, there's a tiny little elevator going down that's just <laughs> dwarfed by this this scaffolding. So, well, a couple things, at least one of which I did not mention previously. Um, so one is this was a huge model, and Hyams wanted to make sure it was lit correctly, which meant only one source of light. And ah. because he wanted that to be the sun, right? And so mm-hmm. um, it was such a big model that what they had to do was they rented one of those Klieg lights, you know, one of the ones that's outside a big movie premiere or whatever, and you know, mm, puts yeah. the and and that's the power of light they had to put to to light this set, so that it would be just oh, from, boy. from one angle because normally you'd just put lights uh, in different locations and and all that, and you know, but uh, if you wanted to do it from right. just one angle, you had to do that. Uh, the other thing is mm. the. One of the things that is also impressive special effects-wise is they were using a new technique, which I don't fully understand, but basically it was a technique that allowed people to walk around outside and have, um, like, model stuff behind them and in front of them so that they were sort of walking through the stuff, even though both the things behind them and in front of them, you know, weren't really there when they were filming it, right? Yeah. So it's a lot like what green screen is typically used for. Well, except green screen is only behind you, right? So the idea that you'd be mm. able to walk through something and have things both in front of you and behind you, that was the new thing this provided. Now, these days, I think mean, mm. it's not such a big deal because you have CGI, and so you just CGI people into stuff, and it's, you know. But oh, yeah. this was uh, like a, a groundbreaking visual uh, technique. I, I need to learn more about it, but uh, yeah. And, huh. and there are shots in here that, uh, you know, that are pretty good where they're walking around outside and stuff, and you can't really tell that yeah, they're not walking in real stuff. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, we see these miners as we zoom in closer. We see uh, in the corridors and tunnels of the scaffolding, uh, we see men wearing helmets and spacesuits. And just as in Alien, these helmets have lights on the inside, which... I'm told is not a practical thing to have in a helmet for the person who's actually <laughs> yeah. wearing it. Yep. Uh, but uh, as you have mentioned, uh, it lets you see the actor's faces. Yep. <laughs> which, uh, um, and the actor's face is exploding, as a matter of fact, which uh, is coming right up. We see two workers. They're sort of on the cliff face, I think, sort of up on in the rocks uh, in the little uh, niche. And they're working and they're talking as they work. Another worker down below them on the scaffolding, uh, he's working on something else, using a tool on some machine to fix it or get it working, whatever. He suddenly starts panicking and yelling for help, and everybody around him is just, you know, knock it off, get back to work, stop, <laughs> you know, yanking our chain. By the way, so I will, I will bet a hundred percent we didn't talk about this previously that you do not recognize the actor. <laughs> Unless you read about it. I did not it. recognize the actor. Yes, the, the actor who is having all this trouble. He uh, He's yelling out for help, and he seems to have spider trouble. And it's Cliff Clavin, also known as yep. uh, John Ratzenberger. <laughs> yep. And I did not recognize him. And I 
I read that he was in this, so then when I went back to take the notes and I watched the first half again, there's one scene where it's kind of noticeable, but even... Yeah, the other. I mean, it's not like he gets a whole lot of scenes where his face is oh, here, shown. Oh, wait, anyway. I thought I was revealing it. I see now it was in your notes anyway, so, oh, well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's uh, he's not very recognizable, even if you know him as uh, Cliff Clavin, the mailman from Cheers, which uh, is, even Cheers is probably before most of our listeners' time. Well, no, I guess. Yeah, I think Cheers would have been after this, probably, probably not that long, maybe a few I years or I think it would have been late 80s, yeah. yeah. Uh, the other, the thing is, he's years. one of those guys been in so much stuff. So I watched with some friends, you know, they kind of have a bad movie night, and we watched a knockoff, an Australian knockoff of uh, Road Warrior. And it's like about a big truck. I forget exactly the name of it. I had to look it up, and he was in it. And it actually turned out to be a pretty damn good movie for, you know, an in, you know independent, you know, just trying to get some people to watch it because it's basically the same as Road Warrior, and and, uh, and he was in that one. And one of the things that always amazes me, because I, w- I wouldn't think this was the case, right, but we have no idea – how many movies are out there that even have pretty major stars in them that you never hear about? You know, they go direct to video, direct to streaming mm-hmm. these days, or they're only in, you know, Japan or something like that. I mean, even pretty major actors will go and do it because they get a big paycheck. The movie doesn't go anywhere. They don't, it doesn't hurt their reputation because no one's ever going to see it. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I, I have to correct myself here. I just did a quick little search and, uh, Cheers actually debuted in 1982 and right went on until 1993. So I think a lot of people are familiar with it just from reputation, if nothing else. Yeah, but, but that uh, means it, that was right after this movie then. So that's yeah. yeah. All right, let me close my research window <laughs> there. <laughs> so Cliff Clavin is having a bad time of it. Nobody's helping him because they think he's just jerking him around. And he's panicking more and more, and finally he ends up ripping out the air hose on his spacesuit, which uh, doesn't work well on Io because they're <laughs> in zero atmosphere. And um, it's a very, uh, very dramatic head-exploding effect. You know, different <laughs> movies treat the, treat the vacuum of space differently. This one goes all out. Once you're exposed to the vacuum, you've got about four to five seconds of head swelling, and then it pops yeah. like a ripe melon. Well, or I'd say a balloon. I, I would say, yeah. you know, we've, we've been sort of complimenting the look and the special effects, and I think it's actually kind of embarrassing because the way it's just like, <laughs> it's just a balloon that suddenly goes and explodes. And <laughs> yeah, it is kind of comical, but it's uh, it's also, uh, I don't know, I, I, I like it probably because it's comical, actually. Yeah. Thankfully, uh, it's, it's not true, and the reality is that our skin is actually strong enough that, you know, what happens if you get exposed to that is that you do puff up some, you know, you got gases in your body that that expand because you're in vacuum, but you don't explode. <laughs> uh, so, which is m- maybe too bad. I mean, maybe it would be more yeah. interesting. <laughs> as long as you're going to go, you might as well go in a more interesting way. <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess that does give you a little more time to react if you're uh, caught in a vacuum. You do have, you have like 15 seconds. Uh, oh. So, you know, yep. <laughs> Keep that in mind. <laughs> Better than nothing, I guess. <laughs> Although I suspect if you save yourself after ten seconds, you're not gonna 
have an enjoyable time after that. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, you may be experiencing some discomfort at that point. So we see uh, from here after Cliff Clavin's head explodes, that's the that's the end of the scene. We just found out this guy went totally nuts thinking he was covered in spiders, and now he's dead. And then we switch to a, an apartment interior. It's a clean apartment. One of the few things in this movie that's fairly clean. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, as I remember it, even Shepard's office looks kind of grubby, and he's like the big guy. But, uh, I mean, he's got a big office, but there was something kind of seedy about it. Yeah, yeah he's a slob. But we'll get <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but here, this is a clean white apartment. It's, it's kind of similar to Ripley's apartment in Aliens, you know, where she goes after she's... Uh, kicked out of the uh, Trucker's Guild or whatever, the ICC, whatever Mm. it is. Anyway, it's uh, another, it would be another similarity, except that Aliens didn't come out till 86. So maybe Aliens was influenced by this. Mm. Who knows? Probably not. (laughs) Uh, So then we meet O'Neill. This is Sean Connery, and we see his name tag is uh, spelled O-N-I-E-L instead of N-E-I-L, which is, is... uh, a variant that does exist, though it's in my experience, I haven't seen it nearly as commonly as I've seen, uh, you know, N-E-I-L. <laughs> so, just a little, little interesting factoid. I can't, I can't ding them for spelling it wrong. They just spelled it unconventionally. Well, and then you know, his sort of number one guys we'll see is called Montone, and I was trying, I was thinking like that's such an odd name. I wonder if it comes from something or what. I didn't, I didn't look it up, but. I figured it was Italian, you know, probably like a, uh, it might have been Montone or something <laughs> like that in the original. O'Neill is uh, watching his video messages, which basically operate the same way as an old reel-to-reel answering machine uh, operated. You know, you play one message at a time, and except now you get to see video. Well, you know, uh, if you think about it, weirdly enough, having worked at Apple and everything, it wasn't until like the iPhone came out that voicemail messages you could sort of choose which one you were going to listen to. Like the whole, you know, before that, voicemail was sequential. You, I mean, maybe you could skip one and not listen to it, but you had to go through each one. <laughs> so right, that, that was right. actually, believe it or not, not that long ago, a, a major feature <laughs> that you could just choose which one to listen to. Yeah. I, I, I still I still have to I, I have an Android so I guess my <laughs> voicemail is a little uh, behind the times I still have to you know dial the voicemail number oh, and then God. you know uh, I feel bad for it <laughs> <laughs> anyway uh, he's watching his video messages and he's got one from Montone who is going to be his or who is already he's no O'Neill's been here two weeks now in this uh, mining operation in Iowa. And he is he is the federal marshal. He's he's the big federal marshal. So he's actually coming in on top of Montone, you know, uh, in the marshal hierarchy. Montone, his second in command, uh, is leaving a message that says, "Tell your wife I got the tickets for her." And he's talking about other things going on. He just sort of throws that out in the middle of stuff. And O'Neill doesn't know what this means, so she explains that the nice couple from the bakery wanted the tickets for a friend, <laughs> and. Uh, we will see shortly, uh, well, when o- O'Neill is leaving the apartment, he tells his wife, he knows it's difficult here, and she'll, it'll get better, and she'll get used to it, mm. blah, blah, blah. <laughs> but they, they seem to have a good relationship in this, 
mm-hmm. little clip that we have. Uh, it's it's just that she doesn't like being here, and mm-hmm. he, uh, he he doesn't probably like it either. But it's his job, so he's yep. here. So if you put put this little friction together with uh, the nice couple from the bakery that uh, did not actually want the tickets for a friend, so you can figure out what's coming down the road here. So then we see a cafeteria, and this cafeteria has a big sign, and we'll see this sign <laughs> more, especially in the latter half of the movie. Mm-hmm. This is the shuttle sign. It says shuttle in great big letters in that same, all, all the signage in this installation is using that same outland font. Uh, so it's very, very futuristic. And uh, the, shine says, the, the <laughs> sign says shuttle. It has a countdown clock on it. It tells you when the next shuttle is arriving because, uh, uh, you know, we discussed this a little bit on our first try. <laughs> that, uh, you know, if you're out in space and the shuttle comes once a week, as it does here, it's, it's a big deal. You're going to be bringing your next Amazon shipment or whatever. And, of course, this is, you know, the exact uh, reference for High Noon to the train, right? The train would come through, uh, and, and later on, waiting for the next train to come, we have waiting for the next shuttle to come. And, you know, yeah, yeah. You know. yeah, so sort of a direct parallel there. May as well mention here that uh, we are going to watch High Noon next, I think, mm-hmm. right? As a uh, sort of compare and contrast exercise. Yeah. So that'll be that'll be fun. The sign is in the cafeteria. And, you know, it doesn't do anything much now, but, you know, it's worth noting for the future. There's two guys walking through different parts of the complex. We see them going through the locker rooms and the employee berths and the cafeteria and all the various... Areas of this uh, this big mining complex, and they meet at a locker, and it seems like there might be some sort of handoff going on between them, or some kind of a some kind of covert activity. You know, it's a, not exactly an above board meeting, <laughs> but we don't learn any details about that yet. And then we switch to a uh, it's a little like a mess hall or a conference room. They've got tables and everybody's smoking in there, and that. Uh, Looks like maybe the place where the bosses eat so they don't have to mingle mm-hmm. with the rabble. Uh, but O'Neill is in here now, um, and he's he's addressing everyone, just kind of introducing himself as the new boss marshal and all that. And the uh, lady from the accounting department, uh, this, this is cute. Uh, <laughs> it's, it has no bearing at all yeah. on the rest of the story, but it's just cute because it's exactly the sort of thing that I see at work all the time. And it's, it's not bad, not a bad thing. It's just sort of, uh, um, you know, a universal experience, I guess. We're a lady from the accounting department. She stands up and she offers, uh, what seems to be a very sincere, friendly welcome. And, you know, she says, if you need anything, please don't hesitate to call me and all that kind of stuff. And uh, we never see her again during the movie. So but what I would he never calls on her. She's she's overly perky, right? She's that sort of you know. Oh, I mean, it's like no workplace yeah. is that good, right? So we say, <laughs> the other yeah. the other thing I like is O'Neill and his remarks. I mean, he's not some great leader or anything, right? I mean, you know, this is pretty yeah, awkward. He is not <laughs> one of the orators for the ages. You know. Yeah. But probably this lady is here to contrast with the next person who talks, who is Mm Shepard. He's the big boss man. He's played by 
Peter Boyle, who some of us will remember as young Frankenstein, and I think you had a reference to something like that. Oh, yeah. Well, the thing probably people now would know most is he was in Everyone, Everybody Loves Raymond, which uh, is right. a hugely successful TV series. I think he died either shortly after that ended or, or while it was going, so that was the last mm -hmm. thing he did. But um, he was in a lot of kind of more experimental or political films. He was a very political, you know, leftist actor. I had to look it up. There's a kind of famous film he was in, The Friends of Frankie something or whatever. But, you know, what's interesting to me is I, I just looked it up and Young Frankenstein was in 1974 and this is in 81. And he, even though you can recognize him as Peter Boyle, he looks very different here. Like I wouldn't, I probably wouldn't recognize him if I didn't know who he was. Uh, yeah, yeah, you know, for years and years, I remembered this part as being played by Rob Reiner. <laughs> yeah, and, actually, and, yes, that's very accurate. Because <laughs> yes. he has this kind of bowl haircut, you know, and and yeah, he just doesn't have the distinctive features here that he did in uh, Young Frankenstein. So I think they were kind of covering some of those up in makeup or something. Yeah, I guess he he does he does have kind of the scruffiness of uh, like the Mike Stivic on All in the Family, yeah. you know. So it, it, it was a fair mistake for me to make, I guess. But it's Peter Boyle here, and uh, he's he's fun in this role. You know, he's not too he's not too over the top. He's not one of those guys who gets like furious and starts yelling at people. He always keeps his cool, which is uh, kind of fun. And he's friendly and welcoming uh, O'Neill to the station or to the to the uh, colony, but he's hinting and not too subtly <laughs> that uh, O'Neill should give the workers a little room. You know, he says they, they just give them a little room. They need to blow off steam mm -hmm. now and then. You know, they they work hard and they play hard. That uh, that sort of thing. But what what he's what he's saying underneath that is, uh, you know, don't be poking your nose around too much. <laughs> so. When they leave, O'Neill and Montone are walking together uh, alone down this big, brightly lit white hallway that we discussed. Uh, you know, the Kubrickian mm -hmm. hallway, and. Uh, O'Neill tells Montone that he doesn't like Shepard. <laughs> uh, Shepard has gotten off on the wrong foot with him, even though. He wasn't overtly hostile to O'Neill. Uh, O'Neill still detected the, uh, uh, you're, this is my town, we're going to do what I say. Mm. And then they get to the marshal's office, which is very big. Uh, and they've got a lot of marshals. They've got probably uh, about eight or ten guys in it, I'd guess. So it's, uh, it's quite a little uh, law operation <laughs> going on here. And uh, I, I think you had mentioned or pointed out that uh, this kind of large office, uh, barring any huge improvements in manufacturing technology, you know, this probably would be impractical in a place like Iowa. Yeah, well, and we see, although I will give them this, they do they do deal with this in one way. But, yeah, I mean, O'Neill's, uh, you know, home facilities are, are pretty large. You know, Shepard's is pretty large. I mean, it's way bigger than what you'd be able to deal with in space. But what I will give them is, uh, and again, they do a number of subtle things that they don't call out in it, which I appreciate. So we see soon a guy get into what in Japan, I think they call a coffin, right? So uh, mm. it's literally just a bed stacked up with other beds and you can draw down a little curtain and that that's the normal sleeping space, right? So one of the subtleties yeah. here is, yeah, everybody who's like has a serious position has 
you know, like a hundred times more space than the typical working guys. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think I've heard these called pods too. Mm, yeah. I could be wrong, but uh, you know, it's it's also very similar to me. I, I referred to them in my notes a few times as berths because it's a lot like. Uh, on passenger trains, mm-hmm. you know, if you watch movies from the era when those were a big thing, um, you know, a lot of the time you'd have a berth that was just basically a bunk bed uh, with a curtain that you could draw. This is the same situation where once you're out of your berth, then you can go to the dining car or the cafeteria as they, as they have here. Plus, they got a strip club here, which I don't think I've ever seen on a train before. <laughs> but I, I do think in general it is a weird thing about the movie, which is the size of this place is a little weird. In, in terms of, um, like as we'll see in a comment on previously, you know, there's points where, oh, here's this guy and he's running away and we got to go get him and all that. And it's like... Where can he go? How big can this place be? How would you not know who this person is? You know, you have these cameras and everything. Like, it's not like they have 5,000 people here, theoretically. Maybe they're trying to imply they do, but, you well, know. I think, they, I think they said, I think, when they, you know, those opening yeah, text crawls or text whatevers, they mentioned it was something like 2,500 people, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Which doesn't doesn't entirely come across in the movie, but on the other hand, the cafeteria is really big. So, <laughs> yeah, you'd think that implies there's a lot of people there. Yeah. But, yeah, they uh, they they make the sets seem a lot bigger. You know, they make the colony seem a lot bigger than, from what you said, uh, uh, than it actual, the actual sets were. I mean, it was pretty small resources. Yeah, they well, they did it. I mean, one of the things they did a good job at, and even in the sleeping area for the regular people, right, I mean, it feels like a huge set, and they do a lot of running through it and, and all this, and yet in reality it was all done on, like, one set at Pinewood Studios in, in England. So they were just being very creative <laughs> about how mm-hmm. they stage stuff. And also they, you know, that that kind of thing that's a little hard to imagine if you don't make movies, it means, like, you know, probably you shoot all your stuff that's going to happen in the cafeteria and then you get rid of the cafeteria set and now it's all, you know, the living quarters and you do all the stuff that's going to be in the living quarters, right? And you just keep replacing the right. sets as you do that. So. Yeah, hope, hopefully you don't burn the sets after you use them because sometimes yeah. you might have to set them up again. Yeah. Uh, I, I think the movie really gives... It gives a good feeling of this is a this is a big place with a lot of nooks and crannies and stuff like that. That doesn't change your point, which is once you're fleeing from the federal marshal, you've got to wait, you know, anywhere from a day to a week for the next shuttle to arrive <laughs> and somehow get on that without him spotting it. Right. Yeah. There's just a lot of a uh, lot of reasons not to get embroiled with the law in the first place in this colony. <laughs> So at the mine entrance, we see the guys suiting up. They're putting on their spacesuits and internally lighted helmets for another day in the mines. Uh, and we see one guy just walking along through all the other guys. He's walking along <laughs> kind of dreamily. Looks like, uh, you know, he might have smoked a really good spliff or something. <laughs> he enters an airlock, which uh, is what miners do, except that he didn't put on a spacesuit or a helmet. Some guys notice that he's getting in this airlock, but by the time they notice, it's too late to stop him. And he looks out the window at them for a moment, kind of smugly, almost like uh, he knows something they don't. He then takes the elevator down while the others up on the upper level are just watching helplessly. 
And we get a little suspenseful interlude of maybe a half minute or so where the elevator's going down floor by floor, and the sign in the elevator is showing decompression warning, you know, and Long story short, when the elevator arrives in the mine on the lower level, uh, the interior of it is a lot more red than it did before. <laughs> We've had another exploding head incident, unfortunately. It's just uh, one of those things that's going around, I guess. So after that happens, O'Neill enters his apartment, uh, and a video message starts to play. Maybe it's just been on repeat this whole time, but it's his wife, Carol. And sure enough, those tickets that she got earlier weren't for that nice couple from the bakery. They were for her and their son. Mm-hmm. Uh, she took the kid back to the space station. You know, apparently this is right after the shuttle has uh, arrived and left. And from there, they're going to uh, Earth, where the boy has never been. She's upset that he's been alive in space his whole life born out there (laughs) yeah one thing i'll say about that at least my understanding is unless he's been subjected to earth's gravity the whole time and they show earth level gravity at least on the interior of this mining station they don't explain that right because when you get outside the mining station you're one sixth gravity uh, i think they say (laughs) But but for some reason it's regular gravity inside the the station yeah, or, or not. Well, it's not a space station here. It's the mining area. But um, if my understanding is, you know, if you were born and grew up in less than Earth gravity, you are not going to be able to deal with it uh, when you get to Earth gravity, right? There's going to be a lot of problems because uh, you're not going to mm, like the yeah. bone density and the, you know, the musculature oh, and all sure. the rest of that. You know? I'm sure the body would develop very, very differently. They even, I mean, astronauts, yeah. you know, our own astronauts have that problem. They have to do a lot of exercising and I think they lose a lot of mass um, mm. when they come back and they have to deal with that. Yeah. Hmm. That makes sense. I think, you know, it's been a few years since I watched it, but I think maybe the uh, there's a, a show, I think it's on Amazon Prime, called The Expanse, uh, and I think it dealt with that issue to some degree. And uh, I haven't I watched it, but I've, I've only heard really positive things about it, so... Uh, you know, yeah, like I enjoyed what I saw of it. I, uh, I know they've added more seasons since I last watched it, so I, I watched it, so I should go back and... Uh, Check it out, see what they've been up to. Um, and it has that one, I can't remember her name. She's got this wonderful voice. Uh, it's like this deep. Uh, I read in a video game review because she appears in uh, Assassin's Creed Mirage, the new Assassin's Creed. She's like the, the mentor character. But she has this, uh, the review, one of the reviews I read, Described it as a smoky voice, and it's uh, it's it's really cool. So yeah, check out the expanse just for her, if nothing else. <laughs> All right, let me get back to my notes here. Uh, so Carol's leaving with the kid. They're going to Earth, and she closes her video message by saying she loves O'Neill, which is is believable. She's not being spiteful in this. She's uh, She's embarrassed about uh, taking sort of the coward's way out. She doesn't put it that way, but she conveys that that's sort of what she knows O'Neill will think of it as. Related to what you're saying, I think uh, what's clearly communicated is she didn't leave without telling him to be cruel. She left without telling him, and, and I have some personal experience with this, because she said, I knew if I had a conversation with you, you'd talk me out of it, right? Like, I wouldn't be able right. to do it. And, and like, yeah, the only way she can make this change is... Uh, 
perfectly understandable. Yeah, I mean, but uh, but still, uh, from O'Neill's perspective, it was yeah, kind it was pretty of a lousy, shoddy yeah. truth. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So back in the marshal's office, they're discussing the latest death. O'Neill's very interested in it. He wants some details, and he asks if the dead man left a suicide note because uh, the other marshals are saying, well, obviously it was a suicide. And uh, the marshals reply, no, he didn't leave a note, but to get down into the mine, he clearly had to know that he was opening and closing, you know, the different airlock hatches and all this. So he, he must have known what he was doing. O'Neill doesn't have a good counter-argument to that. So he goes to visit Dr. Lazarus. She is the uh, mining colony's uh, head doctor. And she is probably my favorite. Well, not probably. She is my favorite character in this movie. And uh, just a fun character for me. She's sarcastic and she's cynical. But, you know, she's also got the proverbial heart of gold underneath it all. Yeah, and one thing I think that works well is that you know, she has a lot of interaction with O'Neill, and there are essentially there are two main characters. But there's never any sense of like romance or cheating or anything like that, right? I mean, he's married; she understands that. There's no, so it's it's nice to be able to have this relationship without that. And I think part of that comes from you know she was originally a male character, and then they cast her in it. And that same thing, I think, you know, happened in Alien, where Ripley was originally a male character. And I think it does work well sometimes for women if it was originally written as a male character, because that means the writer didn't, you know, engage in some of the stereotypes and all that for, for the women, right? Um, hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. I was just reading, uh, I think it was yesterday, that uh, CD Project Red, when they wrote the character of V for Cyberpunk, they had, like, one team did the scripting and one team did some other thing. But but they had the two teams look at it differently. Like, you write V as if she's female. Mm-hmm. You write this part as if V is male. So so they're basically, and they have to converge these into one. And like, maybe one was, was dialogue and one was mission design or mm-hmm. something like that. But, uh... So they had these two different teams take two different views of this character, and they had to harmonize them. So, uh, uh, yeah, I, I didn't, I didn't intuit that when I played the game, but it was an interesting thing to read. <laughs> anyway, Doctor Lazarus has now met O'Neill, and she says, "Take two aspirin and call me in the morning." That's a doctor joke, <laughs> and I mention that because there's a little comeback to it in a minute here. She says she never did autopsies on the people who have died during the mining work the dead men are shipped out pretty fast by the uh by the company plus they blew up so there's not <laughs> a lot to autopsy o'neill tells her he wants a report of the last six months of deaths all the people who have died on in the colony in the last six months and he adds or i might just kick your nasty ass all over this room that's a marshall joke <laughs> So not not the warmest of first meetings, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, but there's still a chance it will blossom into something nicer. Back in the worker bunks, berths, uh, pods, whatever you <laughs> want to call them, one of the guys draws his curtains or shades, and once he's got a measure of privacy, uh, he opens up a little box that has some kind of clear red drug in it, which... Looks a lot like the blood in this movie. <laughs> the blood is not one of the strong points. I think we talked um, about when we did The Prisoner, like my girlfriend had said, oh, you know, these 
these things don't have these colors. You know, these different chemicals don't have all these colors that they always show in the movies. Although apparently they do color certain, you know, really dangerous ones. They'll color like red or something, mm, right? So, right. Yeah. The color is there only as a warning. Yeah. And in this case, that would be appropriate because this stuff turns out to be fairly dangerous. So he shoots up with this red drug. It's one of those things that you inject. Meanwhile, Montone shows up to O'Neill in his office. Uh, I think in his office. Maybe it's his apartment. But I couldn't really tell. It's a set that I didn't recognize very well. It's a comfortable room. Maybe it's the break room in the marshal's office. Uh, but he brings in some food. Uh, Actually, no, this is... I'm, I'm sorry. Well, it doesn't really matter. But I am pretty sure this is O'Neill's quarters. Because he's sort of okay. in the corner alone uh, on this couch where previously, you know, his family had been in there. So anyway, that that's yeah, my take on it, it. It looks like a lounge-type, you know, couch. So, I mean, yeah, it, it probably is just his quarters. Uh, that makes sense. I just didn't recognize it from that angle. We don't really get a, an extensive right. you know, view in the apartment. Anyway, my tone's trying to buddy up to him, and... Uh, um, it, it seems like, uh, you know, it might be working a little bit. O'Neill, O'Neill is a standoffish, sort of reticent guy, uh, just by nature. Um, but, you know, they, they, they leave on good terms anyway. And, and O'Neill seems to give him some credit for trying to be welcoming. And O'Neill, after Montone has left, O'Neill gets a call. Uh, and it makes him leave in a hurry and take his gun with him. Uh, it turns out that some guy is in a room with a hooker, which is not an uncommon thing uh, in the mining colony. We get various references to the prostitutes. Yeah, they, they, and they make it clear, I mean, the prostitutes have an official role, right? Like, they work for the corporation and all that, yeah. which is also pretty realistic. I mean, historically, when you would have, you know, um, groups that were going off and doing some uh, trip to to get some resource or whatever— uh, you know, prostitutes would go along with them, you know? <laughs> so, yeah. You know. Now, I believe the term hooker actually came from one of the Civil War generals <laughs> whose name was Hooker. And, you know, prostitutes would just follow along with his mm -hmm. you know, trains of men as they were marching. So that's a story I heard. I don't know how true <laughs> it is. So this guy who is in a room with the prostitute, uh, he's acting up, he's getting all hostile and angry. He isn't done any permanent damage to the girl yet but uh you know, things seem to be headed in that direction well she's not in good shape though she's bruised up yeah, and, yeah. we can see that that she's uh, she's had at least some uh some bruising on her and he's just acting crazy it's it's the guy that we saw shooting up the drug so uh supposed to put two and two together there so O'Neill finds the local ventilation system. This is another uh, another thing that was inherited from Alien uh, up here. <laughs> As we say, the the famous movie ventilation systems that happen to be large enough for a person to go through. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually, uh, yesterday I was it yesterday. Yeah, I, I, I no a day before yesterday I was at work. Somebody put up a Christmas decoration, one of the better Christmas decorations. Imagine like a square made of cardboard with like four walls, you know, maybe a foot across, maybe 10 inches across, you know, from side to side. And then they, you cover those walls with aluminum foil. Then you hang it up on the wall 
high up on the wall, actually, near the ceiling. And then you print out a picture of Bruce Willis in the air duct in Die Hard, <laughs> and you curve it around a little and stick it in there so it looks like it's an air duct that he's crawling through, just poking out of the wall there. And it was it was very cute. I was impressed. <laughs> I probably spent way too long talking about it, but uh, <laughs> well, I think that should be another traditional Christmas decoration. I'll, I'll add a bit to it, although you know, one of these days we may watch Die Hard. It's one of our our topics, but uh, yeah. you know the scene when he's in the air duct and he falls. He that was an accident. No, <laughs> oh. and so uh, they then had the. Um, uh, the stuntman then sort of replicated it so that he, he could then grab onto, you know, an edge or whatever. But, yeah. <laughs> oh, boy. I did not know that. That's neat. <laughs> so I guess nobody was seriously harmed during no, the No, fortunately not. No. Oh, that's good. <laughs> so O'Neill finds the air ducts and Montone sneaks through them into this room where the guy is causing trouble. But meanwhile, O'Neill is outside and he's negotiating. And it turns out, even though he wasn't an inspired speaker in front of all the executives earlier, he's fairly decent at dealing with uh, psychotic guys on drugs. <laughs> he seems to actually be at least getting this guy to listen to him and ha has him talked into letting him open the door. He says he's not going to rush him. He's not going to try and grab him, anything, shoot him, any of that stuff. So finally, O'Neill comes in. And right then, uh, Montone, it turns out, has just gotten in there out of the air ducts, and he shoots the guy dead. O'Neill is not happy, but, but the guy had a knife, so it was semi-justified. Yeah, but at least. I, this is the key point in the movie, because even though we haven't talked about him that much, um, up to now, just the way the actors portrayed him and, and everything, Montone seemed like a pretty on-the-level guy, like someone that O'Neill could maybe trust. And in this moment, mm. and, you know, Sean Connery does a good job of giving me a look. He knows he can't trust him because, you mm. know, the reason he would have shot him, he had no reason to shoot him, really. I mean, yes, he said, oh, he had a knife. But, uh, but the reason he shot him is to keep, you know, from finding out what was going on, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. So this, this plants some seeds of suspicion in O'Neill. Um, and even, you know, to me, Montone was a little bit shady even before, but I don't know if that's because I've seen the movie so many times before and I just, <laughs> now I will say coming. in his defense, honestly, I mean, if this were, let's say this were to go to court or something, he would still have been absolutely legally justified. They have a, it's, uh, I forget, something like 20 feet or something with someone with a knife or they can close that space so quickly that oh, yeah. you're justified in shooting them. Yeah, and, I, and I've seen that right. happen, you know. Yeah, the knives, uh, knives can mess you up real fast, mm. too, from what I've heard. So, uh, yeah, yeah, he he was technically justified, but but as I said, O'Neill was, was actually seemed to be making progress yeah. in his negotiation, so it's too bad for that uh, drug guy. Dr. Lazarus, back at her office, Tells O'Neill she's done her research that he requested. In the last six months, there were 28 deaths. And she even did more research because she's thorough. She found in the six months before that, there were 24 deaths. But then, the little twist is, in the six months before that, there were two. <laughs> so uh, something has dramatically increased the death toll here in the past year. O'Neill says, are you sure? 
And she answers, I'm unpleasant. I'm not stupid. <laughs> That's pretty much the uh, in encapsulation of Dr. Lazarus's <laughs> character there. <laughs> so the bodies are usually jettisoned midway between uh, leaving the mines on Io and getting to the space station out in space. So they're gone. All the all the bodies that were jettisoned, uh, you know, it's, it would probably be futile to try and find them at this point. But O'Neill goes skulking around the docks at night, uh, and he finds the box with a big tag that says to be jettisoned. He checks it out, and there's a corpse inside, and he gets a blood sample. Again, a, a nice, clear <laughs> blood sample. <laughs> Uh, I had checked with ChatGPT, and, you know, with someone being dead this long, uh, it would be, like, coagulated and difficult to take out, but uh, they don't bother yeah, with that. Imagine. One One <laughs> interesting <laughs> production thing here is, you know, so, again, they're using their space well because this is a pretty big space he's coming into where all these cargo is and everything, right? And he has this light in his hand, and, and it's very bright. Well, Hyams really likes to light things from... I guess you know it's sort of uh, they call they have diegetic sound right, and which means that the sound right. is coming from a radio or from something. Well, he likes to yeah. to light things from sources in the room. That doesn't mean the light's actually always coming from there, but it means it looks like it's coming from there. And yeah, in, the diegetic means it's supposed to be in the world of the movie rather right. than like you know a John Williams score in the background or so something. So they actually did do the lighting from the you know flashlight that he's holding. But in order to get it bright enough, kind of like the thing I was mentioning earlier with the Klieg light, they had to uh, run a car battery to it. <laughs> so there was a oh. there's a big cable going down Sean Connery's leg <laughs> to a car battery. Oh. So he said it was uncomfortable to walk with, but you know they got the effect they wanted. Where uh, <laughs> you know, well, good. Yeah, it it's always fun to hear about the little ingenuities that they come up with in Hollywood. <laughs> so. He's got a blood sample now. He calls Lazarus, wakes her up, and tells her he wants to meet with her right now. In her office, she analyzes his blood. And it turns out um, she's actually uh, pretty good. At, uh, mm -hmm. I mean, the computer's doing a lot of the heavy lifting, but still she knows how to operate at least and get the results that she wants. And this blood turns out to contain a drug called polychloric euthamol. <laughs> and... Uh, again, showing us that Lazarus is uh, at least somewhat competent. She's familiar with this drug, even though it's not available for sale. She's just aware of its existence. She says it's an abandoned military experiment. It was to improve productivity, and it did uh, quite well, actually. But over the course of a year or so, it would make people psychotic. <laughs> so that was a big, uh, big recommendation against it that appears to be what's happening here that's pretty much the solution to the mystery of why uh, cliff clavin's head blew up and why <laughs> the guy went down in the elevator and his head blew up and the guy went nuts with the hooker and so on you know, all this stuff is because this drug has been in use for uh, probably over a year now because in, mm -hmm. in the past year you know some of the psychosis had already started setting in and Dr. Lazarus says, I did good, didn't I, for a wreck? <laughs> and, uh, yeah, she's, 
just endearing. Yeah. Uh, so another lighting comment here, you know, this is at night, although night shouldn't really matter on a station like this, but, uh, yeah. and, and so it's dark and all the light is coming from the computers and, and Peter Hyams mentioned that he, someone wrote about how, oh, and seems like this, he uses natural light and he's like, it's not natural light. You know, it's completely fake, right? But it just, <laughs> again, we're making it look like it comes from the computer. So, you know, but, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, it's, some of the stuff they can do with light is amazing. I remember, I may have discussed this before, but I listened a long time ago to the um, the commentary track on Wild Things, which, hmm. if the, oh my gosh, I, I got to put that in okay, my yeah, I haven't, choice I haven't list seen if it, it isn't there. <laughs> Uh, anyway, O'Neill is doing some research on his own now that he's just done a research scene with Dr. Lazarus. Um, now he's doing kind of the thing that we saw in The Fugitive when, uh, <laughs> when Kimball was narrowing down the, uh, types of arm implants people had. Here he's narrowing down what people who have criminal offenses in this colony and what people have drug offenses on their records. And only two of them have drug offenses, which for a colony of 2,500 people, that's, uh, I guess the Especially with all the cops they have is, here and all the stuff going on. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. Yeah. I guess Con Amalgamate, the company that runs the show is, um, they must be like really strict on uh, not hiring. And it, isn't that the evil company name that Hyams uses, uh, in all his movies? In Capricorn one. Yeah. I, I yeah. read that. Um, I read that, uh, while I was getting ready for this, I, I didn't, like I said, I didn't do a lot of research, but I saw a note about that. And yeah, that is a kind of amalgamate figures into Capricorn one somehow. And I've, I've always loved, uh, you know, even though it's kind of, well, Nowadays, nowadays, maybe not so much. It's it, in some ways, it's kind of a harmful trope because people look at it and say, "Oh, you know, corporations mm -hmm. are evil." Well, the corporations are organizations. They're what they're made to be. Yeah. You know, I mean. But anyway, uh, you know, like Wayland Utani in Alien. I love uh, I, the, the, that name. Only appeared on a monitor in Alien and on a can of beer and various <laughs> things that you wouldn't usually notice. Anyway, evil corporations, yeah, I, I love them, even though uh, you know, some are better than others. <laughs> well, so normally in this scene, what I, like, before the last year, what I would be a little bit critical of, even though it's a movie thing, is that the way he interacts with the computer, you know, is just not, the, like, like, he writes out sentences, right, and it'd be like, oh, that's not how you interact with the computer. But now that we have chat GPT and everything, that's how I interact with chat GPT, right? So yeah, we can kind oh, of yeah. give them a score on this one for being a few decades uh, ahead of themselves. Yeah. So O'Neill is narrowing down the employees uh, just by, you know, like you might add filters on a search for products at Best Buy or something. You know, you, he puts the filters on and it narrows it down to two who have actual drug offenses. And he monitors these guys. He monitors the cameras in the strip club where, uh, now I don't know if he knew the guys were going into the strip club or if he was just sort of, you know, monitoring the whole complex and happened to catch some action. But what, what he sees first is Shepard and Montone meeting, which by itself isn't terribly suspicious because, uh, you know, Montone is the second in command, although it's strange that Shepard, if he's talking with the marshals, he wouldn't have invited O'Neill. But, uh, you know, anyway, Shepard and Montone meeting is a little suspicious. 
And then the two drug guys show up, and they're meeting with Shepard and Montone, <laughs> and that's super suspicious. Yeah, and normally I would say maybe a, a plot problem, but in this case I think you can excuse it, which is like they're meeting in a very public place, right? The most public place, the bar that everybody goes to. Mm-hmm. And so, but so in a, in a, it doesn't make sense in terms of trying to, to not give away the game. But on the other hand, I, I think what I would argue is that this place is so corrupt, they don't have to worry about it, right? They're just going to. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I thought about that because we talked some about things that I thought were sort of plot flaws or unrealistic. I think maybe that might be, I think Shepard has that kind of uh, hubris that makes him think that, uh, you know, I'm untouchable. I'm I'm the company's boss man here, and the marshals are going to play by my rules. He just doesn't think he's, he doesn't think he can be taken down. And he makes that clear explicitly in mm-hmm. talking with uh, O'Neill. So in, in that sense, if you accept that Shepard uh, is simply underestimating O'Neill and assuming things are going to continue on here as they always have, then it makes sense. You know, it's a reasonable, not entirely reasonable, but, um, you know, it's understandable, at least. Now that O'Neill has observed this, uh, he knows there's something off with Montone. He uh, he goes to... Now, I thought it was a high court. Is that is that what you well, think it is? Racquetball is what I know it as, but uh, you know, oh, it's, okay. it's basically you hit it, the ball against the wall, and then the other guy has to hit it. <laughs> oh, okay, yeah, I've never played either of them except on uh, uh, video game systems, and that was long. Right. Ago, the funny, the, was like it was variants of pong. The funny thing <laughs> here is they have this racquetball or highlight court, whichever it is, uh, and. They he wanted um, it to be done in zero gravity, but it it would have been so complex to do that they couldn't do it in the schedule and the budget. Um, so oh, sure. so the thing they have that makes it a futuristic court is that when the ball hits a quarter of the wall, that quarter of the wall uh, has a little lighted strip. It's like that's not very <laughs> futuristic, but okay. <laughs> well, that's a, that's a good thing though. I mean, uh, you good. know, if you if you if the rules of the game require you to know exactly where the ball hit, like. Like, what if when a football hit the ground, you know, it, it lit up whether it was on the main field or yeah. in the end zone? You know? There was, uh, in fact, I don't know if you've probably, well, you've heard of the term one-upping somebody. Mm-hmm. Well, that comes from a series of books uh, written by a guy named Stephen Potter mm-hmm. about lifemanship, he called it. It was his own invented discipline of... Uh, you know, how to uh, get people to do what you want um, just by being mildly annoying, basically. <laughs> you know, like the example he gave for tennis, I think it's one of the very first examples he gives in the first book that he wrote was uh, after there's an ambiguous uh, action in a game of tennis, you're supposed to go up to the net and say, kindly say clearly, please, whether the ball was in or out. Uh, and that, that you know, reduces the confidence of the other guy like, well, I thought it was in, but maybe it was out. <laughs> Stuff like that. Just uh, it's pretty so, amusing. Sounds actually. like his book would be what, how to annoy people and uh, when you know friends or whatever. You know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. How to how to madly annoy friends and influence yeah. people. <laughs> well, they're entertaining books, uh, and there's a book out there called The Complete Upmanship that combines them all <laughs> into one volume. I recommend it. Well, anyway. Back to the uh, highlight or, or racquetball, whatever it is, uh, this some kind of court they're playing on. O'Neill confronts him, and it looks like 
things might get nasty. It looks like this might turn into a confrontation, but ultimately it turns out that O'Neill doesn't want a lot from Montone. Uh, he just wants Montone to get out of his way, you know, don't interfere with what O'Neill's doing. Keep taking the money and doing, you know, what Shepard says as long as it's not getting in O'Neill's way. So Montone uh, seems, seems a little ashamed of what he's doing, it's understandably, but uh, at least he didn't get like an ass whooping. Well, and I think he represents probably the more common situation, right? On his own, he wouldn't be a bad guy, but he's in a bad system. Yeah. And so he's just kind of going along with it. Now we see others later who are probably more enthusiastically a part of the bad system, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But Montone, it seems like he's trying to take the path of least resistance. But yeah, we'll, we'll meet other people later who are more more into it. So now that he's uh, settled things with Montone for the moment, he's monitoring the dock, so Neil is, uh, watching the video cameras, you know, and... Uh, he tracks one of the drug guys. His name's Spoda. I think it's Nicholas Spoda, yeah. if I remember. Spoda, by the way, being uh, Hyam's wife's uh, maiden name that he also puts in yeah. all his movies. So. <laughs> Very good. Yeah, you never have to thumb through the phone, the phone book <laughs> for, uh, for a name if you just use the names of people you know. <laughs> O'Neill, having seen where Spoda is and where he's headed, uh, he leaves his office, and he gets close to Spoda, but unfortunately, right when he's in the same little hallway, uh, like in a locker room, he uh, he bumps into someone, and this someone makes a really loud grunt when he's bumped into, uh, which is loud enough to alert the drug guy, Spoda, and so there's a big chase. <laughs> you know, he bolts, and they're at it. And this is a long chase. Mm -hmm. I mean, not... It's like two minutes, two and a half, whatever. Um, but it's you know, it gives you all these all the set construction they did <laughs> for the movie. They uh, they're they're showing it off. You know, they're running upstairs past the employee birds and through locker rooms, and finally they go through the cafeteria, the great big cafeteria, and Spoda ends up in the kitchen, and he throws the a packet of drugs. You know, it's a, it's a little sort of. So maybe about four or five inches wide, uh, clear baggie with a, uh, it's sealed, you know, like vacuum sealed type thing with a uh, red liquid in it. And he throws it into this, uh, this deep fryer or not a deep fryer, just a boiling pot of soup. I was surprised by O'Neill's reaction to this, even though I've seen this movie like four <laughs> or five times, I had forgotten that he did this. He actually reaches into the boiling soup to get this packet out. And to me, I would think, you know, maybe wait until this guy is handcuffed <laughs> and then come back to the soup pot. But uh, no, that's not uh, the drug yeah, sir. The yeah. evidence is a priority. Something I hadn't thought about is it's not like the chemicals are going anywhere, right? I mean, some of it might boil off or something, but you can just take the water off the grill and let it cool down and all the chemicals are going to be there. So it's, you know. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, he could... He could take the pot of soup to Dr. Lazarus yeah. and say, the bag in here popped. Can you tell what was in the right. bag? And she'd say, well, yeah, the bag probably didn't contain beef broth. <laughs> well, I'm guessing it's this other deadly drug that's in there. Yeah. So he's probably giving himself, you know, at least second degree, if not third degree burns. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. So, uh, but you know, he's acting in the moment. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I guess acting on instinct or something. I don't know. I guess he just needs better instincts. But he uh, he pulls his hand out with the bag, so he's got his evidence. And the drug guy uh, grabs O'Neill and tries to push his head into a deep fryer, which is uh, uh, not something you'd want your head to be in. <laughs> and uh, O'Neill finally knocks him out, or thinks he's knocked him out, but. It turns out that Spoda gets up when his back's turned, when O'Neill's back's turned, and uh, he picks up a Michael Myers knife, you know, your typical butcher knife, and he tries to do the Michael Myers thing on him. But uh, O'Neill defends himself successfully. He does get a good slash in the shoulder, yeah. Uh, so he's not completely all right, but uh, he survives. O'Neill manages to finally knock him down again. He retrieves his gun that he's dropped. And finally, Spoda is caught. <laughs> that's the end of the first half of it. Yeah, and I will say it's uh, not good police training. You don't turn your back on someone. I mean, even <laughs> um, even people who've been shot even multiple times, it's not uncommon that they will get up or they'll have a gun or something and you know be able to do something. So yeah, you never turn your back on them until uh, <laughs> until they're secure. Oh yeah. Um, well, hunters have experience of this because a lot of the time. Uh, if you're shooting a deer or a squirrel or God knows what you're shooting. Yeah, they don't always die in the first uh, bullet that touches them. Mm-hmm. You know, it's uh, unfortunate, but uh, that's how it pans out sometimes. But yeah, yeah, if you're trying to kill someone, well, there's that, that phrase from The Wire, you know, uh, if you if you come at the king, you best not miss. <laughs> <laughs> always make sure your target is good and dead. Mm-hmm. So Neil and Montone are walking down a hall of cells and uh, with with you know prisoners in them and as we know it's kind of rowdy around here so lots of people probably get you know put into you know sleep it off or or whatever. No, oh, yeah. <laughs> but these are pretty creative because in each cell the prisoner is in a spacesuit floating so you know in, theoretically in vacuum so if they. Uh, they really don't have any way to get out. Although they don't, they don't explain how they have no gravity in the cell, but gravity in right in the room right next to the cell. So it's yeah. some special technology for that. But <laughs> yeah, because the moon itself does have one sixth of Earth's gravity, right. so there is some gravity everywhere. And I mean, they don't say it. The implication—I mean, if you take seriously what you're seeing, the implication would be they do have some way to have normal Earth gravity inside the buildings because they're not walking around at one six gravity inside the buildings. Right. So, yeah, you know. I, th- I think in a lot of science fiction, you know, the, uh, artificial gravity right. drive or, you know, various variations on that, like Starfield has that in your spaceship and alien had it. And then Astromo. I mean, it's just, you know, Star yeah. Wars has it too. in the Millennium yeah. Falcon. It's, it's sort of like the universal, it's pretty much omnipresent. universal translator thingies, you know, it's just something you got to do to make these things work. Yeah. So um, now one thing that Hyams mentioned in his commentary is that, you know, because they had to use wires to hold people up and and he didn't want people to see the wires. And in 81, nowadays, there's no problem at all, right? You just go in with CGI and erase the wires. But um, they couldn't do that then. So his trick was he would turn the room upside down. And all the, you know, the letters and everything and the big letters and the, that are painted on the back and everything, Chris, would be upside down. So the wires would be coming up from below. And he said, nobody ever looks below for the wires. And you can't <laughs> you can actually see them if you, uh, you know, like freeze frame it and take a look. But, you know. 
Uh, I didn't notice him, so the trick worked on me. So Neil, you know, uses a phone thingy to talk to Spoda, who's floating there over a speaker. And he says, you had 400 doses of this drug, but Spoda refuses to talk. On the one hand, I appreciate that they don't do some kind of, as you know, Bob, you know, explanation of why <laughs> why these prison cells are interesting and, you know, and you won't be able to get out or whatever. They do a little bit of yeah. it and then O'Neill taunts him with, well, here's all the things that could go wrong, you know, and your your oxygen pipe might get screwed up or something. And, you know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you could have. If he was really sadistic, he could have fun with that. He could spend 10 minutes or so just coming up with different horrible things <laughs> yeah. that could happen. <laughs> yeah, but I think he says at this point, but uh, actually, I don't want you to talk. I want you to do the hard time, you know. So, <laughs> uh-huh. uh, O'Neill uh, tells Montone that absolutely no one should be allowed to talk to Spoda, and he's very clear about it, like absolutely nobody. Um, yeah, and I think maybe w- when this move, when this moment came in the movie this time, I don't know if it was a memory from having seen this movie before you know, various times. Um, but as soon as he said that to Spoda, I thought, ah, he's going to die. You know, Spoda's <laughs> going to turn up dead, um, which I didn't explicitly remember from the previous viewings. But uh, yeah, we'll see. Sure we'll enough. See. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So Neil uh, goes back to Shepard's office, you know, Peter Boyle. And now, <laughs> if we weren't sure before, we know Shepard is evil because he's playing golf in his office. You know, the, <laughs> the only evil people ever play golf in their office. But uh, as we, we've discussed before, uh, the interesting thing is, you know, he's he, now often you see the thing where they have the little cup, right? And they're just getting the golf ball into the cup, right? But here mm-hmm. he has the screen on the wall where when you – smack the golf ball into it, a light shows you where the golf ball would have gone, right? So you get a sense of being out on the field. And actually, when they did this movie, that was brand new technology. So most people, this is the first time they'd ever seen that. Yeah, and I, I I don't think I've ever seen a live installation of it, but it's certainly... uh, I think they have like really sophisticated ones now, of course, because they can have all sorts of more smart digital you know stuff so i suspect if you're into it you oh, can yeah. get some pretty fancy stuff little radar speed clocks and all kinds of fancy stuff yeah peter hyams and sean connery are both golfers so they would go out and golf uh, together and all this during the shooting but peter boyle was not and they had a little bit of a problem because they had to train him to hit the ball high enough um, that it would hit the screen because if he didn't hit it high enough, it would hit the wall behind the, you know, below the screen, and then it would ricochet back, you know, and start, you know, oh, being yeah. like a deadly weapon, you know, hitting people in the room. So. Yeah. Well, I've, I've I've hit my share of worm burners in my day, so uh, I, yeah, I could see how that would just uh, in on, you know what you and, would do now. Almost certainly, you would not the actor would not be allowed to hit the ball in that kind of situation. They would just CGI it, similar to. Uh, anything with arrows and stuff, like the actual mm-hmm. TV show Arrow or Lord of the Rings or whatever, even on TV now because it's it's affordable, uh, n- nobody's allowed to have an actual arrow on a set, right? I mean, so huh. all the arrows are CGI or they're welded to the bow, like when they're holding it back or whatever and they don't want to CGI it. That thing is actually like glued to the bow, so it's not going to go anywhere because huh. they, they would never want a situation on a set where somebody – letting go of a of a you know the string on a bow would cause a you know someone to get hit with a with an arrow so yeah um, oh yeah anyway so a nice little digression there <laughs> yeah so uh shepherd you know and again he's 
there, there's no subtlety about the corruption around here, right? I mean, Shepard's like, look, <laughs> every year we get a new marshal. All the marshals know the deal. You know, how much do you want? <laughs> also, he has some pretty good lines where he's like, you know, my prostitutes are, are some of them are good looking. You know, they're clean and some of them are good looking. My booze is not <laughs> watered down, you know, so the workers are happy. And when the workers are happy, they get more, they're more productive. When they're more productive, the company's happy and then I'm happy. So he's got his nice little speech here. <laughs> And he wants to know, yeah. you know, how much O'Neill wants, uh, but O'Neill turns him down. And, you know, this is always a um, problem when you're dealing with this kind of person, right? If uh, the old thing, I mean, if you're not taking something, then they can't trust you, right? Um, <laughs> and she's like, well, if this hero routine is to get your price up, you know, I can understand that and I'll, I'll think about it. Uh, but O'Neill continues to turn him down. He says he's going to take down Shepard, so... Hmm. And Shepard has read his record and says it's his big mouth is why he's given these crappy jobs like in this place. Uh, and his closing line is another reasonably good line. He says, if you're looking for money, you're smarter than you look. If you're not looking for money, you're a lot dumber. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now, here's a line where I think they should have just left it out, right? That I would have just cut it if I were them, which is then O'Neill says, well, I guess I'm a lot dumber. <laughs> you know? Mm, yeah, it's. Sort of gilding the lily there. Yeah. It might have been better if they just uh, lifted it. That. Yep. So Neil now goes back to the cell to talk to Spoda, and conveniently the cell is dark, and he turns on the light, and he starts talking into the phone, but dun-dun, <laughs> Spoda is dead. There's a lot of blood. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, someone has cut his oxygen tube. So Neil goes looking for Montone. And he can't find him, and he opens a closet, and Montone falls out. And it's pretty dramatic because he's been garroted, garroted, I'm not quite sure how to say it. Mm -hmm. uh, and the wire has been, like, tied into the um, the locker so that he falls out, you know, halfway. Uh, and his, yeah, and just sort of dangles there. Yeah, and his tongue is <laughs> hanging out of his mouth, or, you know, blood and hanging right. out and all this. And uh, Hyam said he was really impressed because the actor uh, didn't blink <laughs> during that whole period. Ah, um, that's good. <laughs> Commitment to the craft. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, it, you know, I had mentioned uh, on our first attempt that uh, this is one of the big plot weaknesses for me because Montone isn't just some worker that the company can treat like crap. He's a federal marshal, which, unless society has drastically changed <laughs> uh, from now to then, if you mess with a federal marshal, that's tempting the fates sure. to, you know. The fact that somebody found this to be the best way of dealing with them is a sign that either they're, they just don't give a crap or uh, they have a lot of power behind them that let them get away with right. it. Right. Now, story-wise, you know, I think it's an indicator why someone like Montone would kind of go along with things, right? Because I think the implication oh, sure. here is that he was starting to work with O'Neill and support him. And so the moment he sort of starts going to the light side, he gets killed, right? He, they just, right. You know, O'Neill has no backup now. He checks his email, and it turns out that Montone—I said monotone. <laughs> Montone sent him a message that just says food shipment. So yeah. now we don't know, did Montone send him that, or did a bad guy send it to him? You know. <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, I, I wasn't sure what— uh, if it was Montone who sent it, if it was Montone, that would be uh, some pretty solid evidence that he was uh, right. trying to stay on the side of the angels or be on the side of the angels. And uh, 
um, you know, really trying to let his better side come forth, and he got killed for it. Yeah. But I, when I watched the movie this time, if there was anything like from Montone, I didn't notice uh, yeah, it. Yeah, it, so. it did say it. It wasn't. It wasn't in the, like our traditional email way. You know, it just said food shipment, and then like underneath it, it said Montone. So. Oh, you, uh, okay. So it it was definitely from him, yeah, or, or somebody claiming like, yeah. to be him, because because it could have been a trap right. that somebody set, and yeah. it could have even been Montone trying to set the trap. Well, yeah, that's all up for interpretation. I I think my take is that he this is where he was trying to be good and trying to help, and and yeah. this is probably his one too far. And that's and what got yeah. him killed. So O'Neill goes to the meat locker where food is, you know, comes in, and it's you know they got lots of frozen carcass is there and he looks around and he gets garroted by a bad guy and then you know he's sort of uh, gagging and everything and he falls onto the floor dead right. <laughs> so the movie's over <laughs> uh so the bad guy turns his back on o'neill because apparently he didn't learn the lesson uh from earlier <laughs> about turning your back yeah. <laughs> and uh o'neill comes back to life and dispatches him you know smashes his head into the frozen carcass and and then he pulls out this collar. It turns out he was wearing a Garrett-proof collar. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just like this uh, strip of white plastic that he put around his neck, kind of like a, I think there's something like that priests use for their uh, right, right. little white square in the front. But now, And also, of course, he had to take it out so that we as viewers could see why he didn't get garroted. But I'm thinking, if you're yeah. in this place where people are getting garroted left and right, why would you take it off? You know? <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah. It seems premature to get rid of that after it's just proven useful in saving your life. And like, yeah, I'm going to keep this around is probably what I'd be thinking. Yeah, because it's not like a bulletproof vest where it's like, you know, bulky and hot and all the rest. That's just a collar thing. You know? but, uh, anyway, so, uh, the Hyams did mention they did this scene in a refrigerated room to get the um, to the breath. And as we talked about, you know, he said now I'd do it with CGI. I'm like, yeah, maybe they'll get there. But CGI breath still looks terrible. It's still better to... Go with the yeah. real thing. I'm thinking it, it might look good in Red Dead Redemption 2, but I can't really recall. <laughs> I believe probably it did. It's sort of like fire. I mean, we're still at a point where maybe they'll solve this, but, you know, there are a number of directors who refuse to use CGI fire because it just never looks good. Mm. You know, it, it just, you can always right. tell. Yeah, it shouldn't be such a hard time. I mean, worst case, you can just take film of fire and you know, in theory she should be able to replicate that right. in cgi well obviously without being an expert in that stuff obviously there's something about that that even that doesn't really work right and uh yeah uh, so yeah it's an interesting one I, th I think part of it is really this physics thing of there's so much chaos going on there that anything predictable or pattern like looks wrong right and right so uh O'Neill, uh, there's one of the carcasses has a label that says general manager on it. So theoretically, that meat was for Shepard or whatever, because he's the general manager. <laughs> it's the Wagyu beef. Yeah, exactly. So O'Neill looks inside the, the general manager meat carcass and turns out there's a whole bunch of drugs, a whole bunch. <laughs> he's just, they're all like connected together and he's like slinging them over his shoulder. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so he immediately goes to Shepard to tell him he found his drugs and flushed them down the toilet. And this upset Shepard, who says those drugs were more expensive than O'Neill could ever imagine. And he tells O'Neill that he is dead. <laughs> uh, yeah, which, again, a uh, risky thing to do to yeah. a federal marshal. <laughs> and whatever subtlety Shepard had is now <laughs> now gone. There wasn't too much. Yeah. Of it. 
And so this, uh, I think, probably is demonstrating that Shepard really is sure of himself as far as the uh, power that he wields in this uh, colony. Yeah. Maybe over-sure, oh, yeah. cocksure, as it were. Uh, Anil, next we see him starting a shift in that big, you know, marshal's room with a new sergeant who's been promoted due to Montone dying. He's, he's someone who's been around. We've seen him at least once, but... Uh, uh, he got promoted, and he's not wearing his sergeant stripes out of respect to Montone just dying, but O'Neill insists that he wear them, so that's kind of interesting. Yeah, yeah, well, that is, I mean, that's, I mean, O'Neill is just basically trying to go mostly by the book. I mean, he did tell Montone, you know, I don't care about you, just keep on cooperating with Shepard, but don't get in my way. So, I mean, he... He will cut corners when it seems expedient, but it seems in general he's a by-the-book mm. kind of guy. And it turns out he's tapped uh, Shepard's phones, and there's a Shepard call to someone asking for them to send two of their best men to take out O'Neill. Um, and uh, there's a little back and forth in a couple different scenes. But anyway, it turns out these men will be coming in on the next shuttle. And I don't. it's been long enough since I saw High Noon. Um, but I don't recall this directly, but I did read some comment that said, yeah, th this basically happens in High Noon with a train, right? There's a train coming, and they know how long it's going to take the mm. train to get there. So the next shuttle, we said, is actually, we'll see, is like in 60 hours. So we know I have a 60-hour countdown clock. Yeah, and that's why the movie's 61 hours <laughs> yeah. long. Shepard also uh, says he has someone on the inside. We'll make sure that nobody helps O'Neill, so... After hearing this, O'Neill goes to the bar, and it's clear that, you know, everybody knows what's up, right? It's like it, what they're doing here, right, is exactly that scene in the Western where you kind of walk down the center of town and everybody goes inside and closes the door, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, well, we saw something similar in uh, Halloween 3 recently when they arrive in Santa Mara and uh, everybody's looking out of their right, windows right. at this car driving in. So <laughs> it's not quite the same because they're all sitting in a bar, but they're basically just staring yeah. at him and, and uh, you know, yeah. Uh, and we, and of course in the bar, we've got the big neon countdown of the 60 hours. Um, and you know, I, I feel, I usually feel that countdowns are, are a crutch and I don't like them. Hyam says he loves a countdown, but I do excuse it in this case. Cause we say they are in a remote place. They would be very aware of when the next shuttle is coming. Mm -hmm. So at least they have a good excuse in this movie. And, and this countdown, really, this isn't like countdown to the bomb going yeah. off. You, you don't have to come up with a solution by the end of the countdown. You just have to try and be ready <laughs> by the end of the countdown. Right. So it's a little different. Although the funny thing is, uh, well, before we get to that, I'll, um, well, we do, I'll just say, so we do see him like doing stuff, putting together plans and trying to do as a caught the, you know, home alone traps or whatever, but then they never really come into play. It would have been fun to see a little bit of that, yeah. you know, um, <laughs> I, even though again, it, it, sure, it's totally a trope, but I'm all for having the little traps that you've, uh, put together, you know, um, and I, I think you, you mentioned, this is something I didn't even catch in watching it. Uh, you you mentioned something coming up where he checks for a gun that he stashed. Yeah, we see him like Yeah, we see him there. put a gun in that hallway, and then later that gun is gone. And it's never explained, but it's clear that somebody was, like, watching him or, you know, something and uh, undoing yeah. his work. Um, 
But uh, back in the marshal's office, he calls in the new sergeant and, you know, just says, how, how many people can I count on to support me? And the sergeant's just pretty clear about, oh, none of us. <laughs> it's like, we're, we're young. We got families. And he said, well, I have a family. <laughs> but he appreciates the honesty. Like, he knows he knows what he's up against. Yeah. So next he's playing by himself in the racquetball court and Dr. Lazarus comes in. I always love these movie things where people just show up. We talked about in some previous thing, right, where, oh, the friend just shows up in the middle of the living room and, you know, uh, et cetera. So somehow she knows he's here and just comes in. Um, but it's a little more excusable in, in this case, at least. <laughs> yeah, fun. well, she was probably actively looking for yeah. him, yeah, so it's not terribly hard to find somebody here, I'd imagine. And they do kind of an interesting visual thing here. Each one of them is sitting against the wall. And one of the things Hyams did in this is he did widescreen and – he something he does is a little unusual for directors. Usually, you're using widescreen for your big, you know, epic mountains and and stuff, right? For um, cinematography, uh, but he likes using it in small spaces so that there's a lot of space. Mm-hmm. So we see that here, where next to each of them when they're being shot, there's a lot of blank space in the wall. Um, it kind of makes them smaller and you know more lonely. And uh, Lazarus tells him that everyone's reporting sick on Sunday. There seems to be a sudden epidemic. <laughs> She says, based on his record, he's supposed to be the kind of guy who would flee, and she wants to know why he's staying. And he says he's worried they might be right about him, and hes I guess this is sort of his chance to prove that he is a good guy. Yeah. That he has some principles with yeah. the PLE on the end. So, you know, I'm not doing all the details of this. They have a nice little conversation here that kind of personalizes them and shows some vulnerability in him. And she then proposes that they go get drunk, and he agrees. <laughs> I guess he knows how yeah. much time he has to go, but you got to be careful about that sort of thing. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, as you mentioned earlier, you know, this isn't like, uh, let's get drunk and then, uh, you know, go home and knock boots. It's just <laughs> like, hey, let's have a few drinks and unwind. You yeah. Know, they're they're just they're just colleagues. You know, O'Neill doesn't come across as the kind of guy who would uh, turn around and uh, you know run around on his wife the moment that she's left the colony. And uh, then Lazarus doesn't come across as a as a home wrecker. Right. Right? I mean, she, they're just both both adults who are coming to appreciate each other's uh, redeeming qualities. Sure. You know, and so they're going to go and, get you know, drunk. <laughs> yeah, and he would have all the opportunity to want. As we've already said, obviously there's company prostitutes. That, uh, I, I didn't mention this time. You know, in the bar, they have these um, dance circle lights, or I don't know what you call them, but, you know, the spotlight's coming oh, down, yeah. and they have these very, you know, pretty much pornographic uh, dances going on. I couldn't tell if they were yeah, it's some... projections or, or, or actual people, but, uh, you know, yeah. <laughs> I thought they were actual people up there. I didn't think they were actually... In flagrante delicto, as it were, but, uh, you know, they were definitely doing some very dirty dancing. <laughs> yeah. So, and it's now 20 hours to the shuttle, so uh, they're definitely not not wasting any time with the countdown thing. Um, yeah. And this is where we see O'Neill doing the Home Alone thing, and he's going and doing something with cameras. I think he's just getting them to focus in certain places. It's not totally clear, because they already, they're already there, so it's not like he's adding cameras. And like I said, we put, he puts a gun somewhere and all that, but none of this really matters. And then it's 10 hours, and he's alone in his quarters, and he gets a video call from his wife, and their reservations have come through. So, you know, this is a mining colony. The next step is there's a space station, and you go from the space station to Earth. And so they're on the space station. Their reservations for Earth have come through. They're booked for a flight home, and they did a third reservation for him, but he refuses to leave. 
And he has a conversation here with his young son. And uh, this is, you know, very much a callback to 2001 because the, the character in 2001 has a conversation with his young daughter, who was actually Kubrick's daughter. Huh. And so, uh, and, you know, they have a conversation. And uh, the boy mentions that they put you to sleep for more than a year. And, you know, I checked into it. I, you know, even Alfred, I mean, I always talk about space is way bigger than we think and, and all that. But uh, it would actually be a five-year trip unless they, you know, came up with some... Yeah amazing new technologies. And I think when people are like, oh, you yeah. know, we're going to go into space and we're going to do this and that, and so you really don't understand how big space is, right? <laughs> I mean, I think Douglas Adams had a little blurb on that. You know, yeah. How mind-bogglingly big. Yeah. So, I mean, <laughs> literally, because, you know, what, what we're used to, like I might have told you before, there was a video game designer. He had like a, a strategy, you know, 4X strategy game in space. And... People are like, oh, you should, you know, show realistic distances between the planets, you know, on the like when you're showing the solar system. And he's like, you don't get it. We couldn't. You, you couldn't see them, right? Uh, we Everybody lies when they do their little solar system thing and put the planets on there. Because if you had anything even remotely realistic, even at a tiny scale, you wouldn't see any of them <laughs> because they're so far apart. Oh, yeah. Right? Um, yeah, yeah. yeah, Starfield does a bit of fudging like that, too. Uh, and that's why, I mean, if you, unless you come up with something funky like wormholes, then, you know, it just isn't realistic. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. Yeah. Hey, so. Uh, and, oh, I wanted to mention while we're on this scene, um, just something that struck me about uh, Sean Connery's son in this scene is that, uh, you know, he's a, uh, he seems like he's a good kid and he loves his dad and all that. But for some reason, the expression on his face just makes me think he's a, like this little mischief maker waiting to do something awful, you know, like as soon as he gets off the call, he's going to go kick a puppy or something like that. And I, I don't know. It's just, it's just the way that the kid comes across. Uh, and it, that's not the director's intention, but that's mm -hmm. what I got out of it somehow. And I, I know that's not what, we're not supposed to think this is a rotten little kid who's going to go be a shit the minute he gets out of the phone call. <laughs> but but that's the impression I got. You yeah. Know? So there it is. So then it uh, it's supposed to be 90 minutes to the shuttle, and the bar is now empty. There's not even any nude dancers. And at 40 minutes, <laughs> we get the surprise that the shuttle has arrived early. As <laughs> I complained about previously, I don't know how something in space arrives early. Like, there's not unexpected, you know, <laughs> uh, weather or something. Uh, but, uh, okay. Uh, I guess. Yeah. I I think it's just sandbagging for, you know, possible eventualities. That That's my that's my headcanon justification yeah. for it. <laughs> I think the thing here is he just wanted to subvert expectations, right, and kind of throw things off. Like, oh, we thought we had another hour, and nope. Yeah. It's not like, like Sean Connery was going to figure out the absolute solution to uh, defeating the assassins <laughs> in the 40 minutes that was left. So there's this big alarm that goes off when the shuttle is coming in, and O'Neill goes to the mess hall. Now, this is different than the bar that we'd mentioned earlier. This is kind of the place where maybe law enforcement people or officials or whatever have lunch. And this is actually full. There's lots of people in here. And he asks for help, but no one's interested in helping him out. Now, that, I hadn't thought of this, but that, but that's uh, that's... It's sort of an amusing, I wonder if the uh, lady from accounting is there, because she's the <laughs> one who said 
early on, you know, if you need anything, right. just let me know. It would have been funny to put her in here. That's like, I think that's a missed opportunity. They could have done something fun with her, oh, yeah. especially if she was also like, ah, forget it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So Neil goes to his office and starts loading shotguns. <laughs> and then we get pretty extended sequence of a shuttle arriving, you know, very 2001 was seeing the rockets go off and it come down and, and all that. And on his camera feed, uh, O'Neill watches passengers getting off the shuttle and at the end of the line are the two bad guys. And again, you know, there's no, nobody's pretending anything here. They just take their guns out of their duffel bags and, and they're on the hunt. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They're pretty casual about it. They're just standing there right in the, uh, Right in the docks, you know, the spaceport area, and they just set their duffel bags down and start screwing their sniper rifles together. <laughs> and I wanted to mention here something, and I don't remember now. Oh, the shuttle. Uh, I happened just accidentally, I guess, I came across a page of a science fiction museum that has the shuttle model as part of its uh, catalog or inventory. Um, this is the place that has that outland three-dimensional sign mm. we mentioned that was used for the opening credits. And the shuttle model is really impressive, and it's not used. I don't think we see very much of it at all in the movie. We see a few shots of it, and they're mostly obscured by uh, steam and smoke, mm. you know, the landing shuttle and all. But it's a it's a cool little model, and what, what the article accompanying the photo said was that the director had wanted uh, something that was emulating the Staten Island Ferry. <laughs> he wanted a box with engines, I think is what they said. <laughs> and it's a, it's a cool-looking little craft, uh, so it's worth uh, worth checking out because you don't get to see much of it in the movie itself, but it's somebody took a lot of time on it. Right. So uh, as these guys are starting their hunt, the hallways and common areas are all deserted. You know, Everyone knows what's up. O'Neill walks through the mess hall and he gets shot at. Uh, it seems like the the bad guy is up in the rafters or something. It was a little little unclear to me. Mm -hmm. Later, he's walking in the catwalk area above the bar, and the other bad guy snipes at him, but manages. Well, he gets hurt, but uh, he manages to escape with an injured arm. Uh, and this is when he looks for one of his stash guns, but it's missing, so he knows people are screwing with him. Mm -hmm. And then there's a, a door opening, and O'Neill is ready to smash the person who comes through, but it's Dr. Lazarus. <laughs> so she patches up his arm. She's literally the only person who's who's helping him. Now, this just this occurred to me uh, the first time we tried recording this. Let me do a little research here, <laughs> because I think the name Dr. Lazarus has been used in... Uh, Galaxy Quest. Yeah, Dr. Lazarus was Alan Rickman's right, character. Right. So I wonder if that was meant to be a tribute to this character. Could I, be. Uh, could be. Might not be. I don't know. But uh, anyway, yeah, Dr. Lazarus does, for me, have some... Uh, I don't know. She's just a really fun character. Yeah. I just enjoy her. Okay, go on. I'm sorry. <laughs> so she patches up his arm, and then... They hear someone, you know, rattling around. So he, he gets a space suit from a random locker so he can go outside. And uh, he finds a hatch to the outside. And then <laughs> we see Dr. Lazarus running around a few times. It was, it, her run is really funny. It's this very girly run. Because she's a, you know, middle-aged, you know, I'm not, older would be wrong to say. It's not like she's 70 or something in the movie. She's like in her 50s or 
or something, and, and her run is just so girly. <laughs> oh, yeah, it just every time they go through that Kubrick, you know, diamond shaped hallway, I, I just reminded of Doctor Who because you know they had one of those, and they just keep using it. You know, they the way the when you see from the outside, you see there theoretically they have four or five of those sort of in a spoke, right? But you know, there's just one, mm-hmm. and they keep running through the same tunnel <laughs> the whole movie. So. Oh yeah, well. You know, uh, O'Neill has has asked Lazarus to try and steer the assassins to this certain tunnel. So she's got into this hub area that has several different doorways going off of it. And she's, like, locking the doorways she doesn't want the guy to use and, you know, leaving the doors open that are on the path she wants him to take. And uh, and actually, I was uh, impressed to see, and maybe this is something that has been used in the real world for decades... But uh, in video games, it's pretty common in science fiction settings. If there's a door that's locked, it's going to have a red light somewhere on it. And if it's open, it's going to have a green light somewhere on it. And that's exactly what they do here. You know, she takes this hub area with six doors and she makes sure that like four of them are red and the entry and exit that she wants the guy to use are green. So that all makes sense. And the, the and I remember, and it makes sense now, thinking about why the different doors were turning red. I mean, I knew it meant locked, but why she was doing all this. But I have to tell you, I didn't, I'm totally misses. I didn't pick it up at all that she was doing something strategic to uh, get them to a specific space. So I feel like it might oh, be a yeah. case where maybe they needed to put a little more <laughs> a lantern on it or something. Yeah, like, there there is a line of dialogue where he says something like, see if you can herd him into C5 right. or something like that. But it's it's one of those blink and you'll miss it type yep. of things. That is the downside of, of not over-explaining everything is that, well, someone <laughs> may miss it. So, you know, O'Neill is outside and, he, and he's doing the, you know, 2001 spacewalk kind of thing. Yeah, and he does go to one of those tunnels, and you, you can see the silhouette of the person walking through it, and he disconnects some cables, and Lazarus shuts the door so the guy can't escape, and the tunnel explodes, and we get wide vision on the guy. So, <laughs> <you know. laughs> yeah. yeah, they get the old balloon treatment. <laughs> so one problem they had with only sending two guys is that there wasn't a whole lot for them to do in these action sequences. And I think that's one reason they didn't have all the traps and everything. Cause if you have like a dozen people after you, then the traps can pick off a few of them. Right. And then you get down to the core, but when you've only got right. two guys, you can't get them killed off. So, <laughs> you know. yeah, it would, it would be kind of anticlimactic if both of them just, you know, ran into a trap and died. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Lazarus is now checking the monitors, trying to see what's up with O'Neill and, she falls for the classic movie mistake that I think we're now all too educated for, right? Which is the sergeant, the new sergeant guy comes in and he's curious about O'Neill, wants to know if he's all right. And then where is he exactly? <laughs> you know, <laughs> like I remember when um, great movie uh, LA, uh, LA Confidential, right? Mm. And at the end they have this bit, right, where where um, Kevin uh, – What's his name is, is, you know, with the police chief in his house and the police chief says, does anyone know you're here? And, and then it was really shocking that he turns around and, and shoots him and kills him. Right. <laughs> the third or fourth time you see it in the movie, you're like, okay, when someone says something like that, <laughs> where is this person? Or are you alone? Did you tell anyone? It's like, oh, you know, <laughs> alarm should be going off. Yeah. But she, uh, she doesn't figure it out for being the kind of skeptical person she is so she tells him where o'neill is he's probably in the greenhouse area 
And in the greenhouse area, which we can tell because, you know, he's outside. We're thinking from the outside. It's green. <laughs> and the other bad guy's walking through it looking for O'Neill. And he's outside, like, above it, removing a solar panel or something. And he throws it, and it floats down. <laughs> I don't know why he would know this was going to work. But the bad guy sees the shadow of this panel going by and shoots at it, which shatters the glass and causes vacuum to come in and suck him out. <laughs> That was a pretty pretty good guess on O'Neill's part that just throwing something would cost the guy to shoot the window. <laughs> no, yeah. yeah. Well, you know, it's this shadowy thing falling fast, I yeah. guess. Yeah. But if he's a trained killer, he probably wouldn't react reflexively <laughs> to something like that. I don't know. But the greenhouse window, too, uh, you know, if the greenhouse is pro- providing a significant amount of the oxygen for the colony that could be causing trouble down the road too yep so neil you know, know so now the bad guys are all gone movie must be over you know neil is hurt and he's making his way back in but before he can get back in surprise the sergeant has suited up and is now shooting at him so and i i have a theory that the the sergeant if i remember right he's like the one black guy mm. in the movie I mean, there's not yeah. there's not a great diversity of maybe uh, somewhere you know, in the bar or something, but yeah, skin tones, yeah. And uh, so, so when this happens, you're supposed to know that oh, the sergeant has come back, and but I didn't. I was like, who's this guy? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't see him get off the shuttle. Then <laughs> <laughs> you know, plot wise, right? They they are trying to. Throw a twist at you, like, oh, the bad guys were gone. There were only two, but, oh, there's a surprise third. Yeah. O'Neill manages to sneak above the sergeant and float down and kick him, and then they have a fight on the edge of a walkway. And eventually O'Neill manages to pull the sergeant's air cable and send him off. So finally, probably the last bad guy is dead. Although, you know, in this place, there's a lot of a lot of bad guys to potentially go through. Yeah. And back in the bar, everyone is silent as he enters, and he's limping and very hurt. And <laughs> But he goes across and finds Shepard in the corner and really seriously punches him, you know, <laughs> sending him across the table. <laughs> uh, then we see him packing up, and Lazarus stops by to say goodbye. And uh, he says she was a good friend. Uh, and she says he did good. He says she did good. And then he sits down and sends an email to his wife saying he'll be back to Earth with them. End of the movie. <laughs> yeah, nice heartwarming conclusion. Yep. So, well, it will definitely be interesting to contrast this with, with High Noon. There's some interesting differences, I think, there. Even though it's been a long time, or, well, a few years anyway, since I saw it. And I, uh, I'll no doubt be surprised. I... You know, I think there are fewer exploding heads. In that, <laughs> yeah. And I think more bad guys to shoot at. Although, I don't know. Maybe there were only two of well to see. <laughs> I'm thinking there might have been four guys came in on the train, but I could be way wrong. It's been a long time. For me, the really odd thing about this film is that, you know, normally we say like the, you know, the sum is better than the parts or whatever, right? And I, <laughs> I would argue this is a movie where the parts is better than the sum, right? Like, <laughs> you have some really good actors in it. You have some great set design. You know, you have an ambitious director who's trying to do something serious. And yet, you know, Capricorn One is a better movie. You know, it's a it's a more engaging uh, for me anyway. And and I, I you know can get into it more. And I just don't feel like this 
you know, the stakes don't seem quite right. It feels like there's not people to root for. It's like having everybody be so nasty, <laughs> except for <laughs> Lazarus, you know. Mm. I don't know. It just so I know, you know, we had some obviously discussion about this before, but I just uh and, and you can kind of see it in the results. Like actually it was, it was really interesting, very unusual. If you look at the um rotten tomato ratings are exactly the same between uh critics and viewers, right? You usually huh. often the critics will really like something and the viewers will hate it, or the you know, viewers will really or like it and the critics will hate yeah. it. They both are fifty four percent, which is a real kind huh. of you know, middle of the road uh, <laughs> rating, right? Yeah. Um, so, hmm. you know, in in the worth watching sense for me, I wouldn't. I would absolutely show somebody Capricorn one, but I, I you know, I wouldn't really uh, drag them to the couch for this unless it was in the context of oh, let's you know compare this to High Noon or something, right? You know, that as a historical hmm. thing. So yeah, I just find that, yeah. find it kind of unsatisfying in in some way. It just didn't grab me. Yeah, yeah, that's that's fair. I uh, I, I like it because I like that sort of space trucker mm-hmm. aesthetic, and uh, Doctor Lazarus is just uh, yeah. Every time I see the movie, I like her more. <laughs> I, I think she just reminds me of some people I've known that I've liked a lot. Maybe I, I don't know, but uh, yeah, there's there's just a lot of cool, like you said, the the parts maybe uh, more than the the whole. Uh, you know, the wacky little font that they <laughs> use, it's uh, futuristic and yet a little bit cheesy, but kind of cool at the same time. And, I don't know, just all these little details are, are pretty neat. But then, uh, you know, the movie overall, it isn't going to, you know, bring you to tears of joy or sorrow or you know, anything like that. It's just, uh, it's a fun movie. You know, get yourself a big tub of popcorn <laughs> and a giant beer. And uh, it's it's fun, but I wouldn't say, oh, you absolutely have to watch this. This is the be-all, end-all of science fiction. <laughs> no, it's just a fun science fiction movie. And if you approach it with that attitude, I think uh, you won't go away too disappointed. I think another interesting one to contrast it with at some point would be 2010, because he directed 2010. And, of course, there's, and I saw that like when it came out, so I, I don't have too much memory of it. But... Yeah, that's when I saw it too. So I don't you know, so it's much. another space movie that's going to have some similarities, uh, just in terms of doing special effects and setting and everything. It'd be kind of interesting to see how that one went. Um, yeah. So yeah, I think uh, it's pretty clear where we're at on this one. <laughs> People can make their own choices. Yeah, on. I say I say worth watching, but uh, you know, don't like. Uh, expose yourself to great hazards to get a copy <laughs> of it. You know, it's just a fun movie. Yeah. And, and a good-looking movie a lot of the time, too. Yep, yep. I mean, visually, self-design speaking. Yep. Hey, well, next week we'll check out High Noon and see what we think of that one. All right. Yeah, yeah, I uh, I haven't quite gotten to the point where I'm willing to use AI like the Chat GPT for uh, for actual research, or at least if I ever asked it a question, just sometimes I would uh, just to see what it comes up with. But but anything it comes up with, 
I would I would double check it definitely <laughs> well, by uh, you know I'm, searching for it. Oh, you know, I I, my, I think I mentioned we did the uh, one of the Patrick Troughton ones, and I asked a question, and it said like, oh, unusually, this Patrick Troughton episode is missing, and I'm like, what are you talking about? Patrick Troughton is famous for how many episodes were missing, you know, uh, more than any other doctor. <laughs> and recently, kind of kind of similar. I was, uh, I've been, I got the classic Popeye cartoons. I've been doing research into animation and stuff that we'll probably be covering at some point in one form or another for us. And the original Popeye cartoons, I mean, is you know, there's a lot of old animation that's kind of hard to watch now, right? The, I mean, because it was just, it was pretty primitive and et cetera. And the Popeye cartoons from the very first one are just amazing, just extremely well done. Mm-hmm. But I, I had read, uh, Something in reading about it and Max Fleischer and everything that when they created the cartoon, um, there was some really bizarre, obscure way that Popeye got his strength in the cartoon strip and they changed it to spinach in the cartoon, you know, in the animated cartoon. Uh So I didn't remember what it was and I wanted to know. So I asked ChatGPT what was his original source of strength before the animated cartoons and it said, oh, it was just his fine, upstanding, whatever, and, you know, et cetera. <laughs> and then, I, and then and here's the interesting thing. Is I said, like, no, that's wrong. There was a source. And it goes, oh, yeah, it was it was, <laughs> so weird. It was a wiffle hen. There's a thing called a wiffle <laughs> hen, and he would rub the wiffle hen. <laughs> so I now, I now have this phrase, I got to go rub the wiffle hen. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so I asked ChatGPT, I said, so that I understand, why would you give me a wrong answer? And then if I tell you it's wrong, you're then able to give me the correct answer. Why didn't you give me the correct answer in the first place? And And it said, well... The strength of the spinach thing can kind of, well, in this case, could overwhelm being able to notice something else, right? And so, mm. so it was sort of influenced by everything talking about Popeye's talking about spinach. Uh, yeah. But it is weird that when I say, well, you're wrong, but I didn't tell it the answer because I didn't remember the answer. It then gave me the correct answer. So really interesting thing. But you're, you're completely right. Even even with ChatGPT4, you cannot rely on anything it gives you. It can only be, but this is the same with Wikipedia, right? I mean, Wikipedia oh, sure. is a starting source and give you ideas, but if you rely on what's on a Wikipedia page, you know, you're also going to get in trouble. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't know. Uh, they try to catch a lot of the mischief makers, but uh, one, some, of, some of them manage to stick stuff in there that stays for a while. So, yeah, it's a, it's a fun technology, and it does come up with some pretty neat stuff if you're just noodling around, you know, coming up with, write me a poem about right. how majestic Joe Biden is or well, something. Well, with the, uh, the stop motion stuff we're doing, I now have a habit of asking it to create an image related to the, the scene I'm thinking about just because sometimes that image it creates gives me ideas, right, for for what I want to do. Um, so, the, yeah, it's a, it can absolutely be a springboard for creativity if you use it the right way. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm not uh, not uh, detracting from the tool. Just know it, know your tool's limitations. Yep. That's the moral. 